Welcome to the 498th Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Ken Gonzalez Day. He's among the artists included in Photoflux, Unshuttering LA at the J. Paul Getty Museum. The exhibition opens when Getty Center reopens on May 25th and will be on view through October 10th. Photoflux features pictures by 35 Los Angeles-based artists who challenge ideals related to beauty, representation, cultural capital, and objectivity. It was curated by Jill Moniz. Gonzalez Day's work considers the historical construction of race and the limits of representational systems, such as photographs of lynchings and museum displays. His 2006 book, Lynching in the West, 1850-1935, expanded our understanding of racialized violence in the United States through the discovery of photographs of lynchings of Latinos, Native Americans, Asians, and African Americans in California. His work has been the subject of solo or two-person exhibitions at museums such as the Smithsonian's National Portrait Gallery and the Palais de Tokyo in Paris. On the second segment, celebrating Tony Conrad on about the fifth anniversary of his death. But first, Ken Gonzalez Day, after the break. Compare and contrast. This foundational method of analysis first championed in the late 19th century by Swiss art historian Heinrich Wolflin, is at the heart of an exhibition of well-known and beloved works at Sheldon Museum of Art. Through July 3, 2021, the exhibition Sheldon Treasures presents works in pairs, inviting fresh and unexpected conversations between the works and among viewers. Richard Diebenkorn, Edward Hopper, Helen Lundberg, Ed Ruscha, Kay Sage, and Wayne Thiebaud are among the artists included. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Now that the Getty Villa Museum has reopened, get free reservations to explore the villa's blooming gardens, antiquities galleries, and perhaps most exciting of all, the major new exhibition, Mesopotamia Civilization Begins. Featuring work from the Met in New York and the Louvre and Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris, Mesopotamia is the most important assemblage of Mesopotamian art ever presented on the West Coast. Visit online or make advance reservations for the villa at getty.edu. At long last, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in LA 2020 Aversion in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. Open April 17th through August 1st, 2021. The fifth edition of the Hammers Biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view April 17th through August 1st, 2021, at the Hammer in the Huntington. Find details and make reservations at hammer.ucla.edu and huntington.org. And we're back. Ken Gonzalez Day, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the portraits that you have begun making during the pandemic. We could talk about how they help bring human connection back into your life during a period when we've all lacked that or about the mechanics of working with humans and what that has revealed about the last year of our lives. But I'm mostly curious about how you consider these portraits within your broader practice with what you've been doing for the last couple decades 
and in particular, your address of historical archives and institutional collections of old things, if you will. Here you are in this new body of work creating your own index, your own archive of the present, if you will. How did your work in archives and in institutional collections inform your Pandemic Portraits project? I mean, the most obvious thing was that in the pandemic, of course, we could not go to archives or do the usual kinds of research-based practices that I am most comfortable doing. And as the months rolled by, I just was thinking that I needed to find a way to start making work again, start thinking about what I could do. And of course, creating, starting to create a record of this time photographically seemed like a place to start. So I, I invited some friends of mine, basically anybody that was in touch with me, I'd say, hey, you know, <laughs> are you interested in having a portrait taken? And part of it was to just to record, I guess, to record that connection, that moment. And also, there were some challenges in terms of thinking about how to photograph from a greater distance than normal, because I would have a mask on, they would have a mask on. So how to do it safely, I guess the question of whether we were putting ourselves in peril, you know, in those early months, we would try to do everything as safely as we could. But of course, the, the rules were changing every day. So I think for me, it was it will exist as a kind of snapshot of this moment, of that moment. And that was before the, I live in Los Angeles, so that was before we had a big lockdown when all the country thought of us as the worst place in the world, the epicenter. At that point, I had to stop. But up to that point, it, it hadn't been fully closed down. And so every interaction was a negotiation, was a conversation, and also learning how other people were responding and reacting to the pandemic, because I had been basically teaching from home, like many people at that time. Teach at Scripps, I teach photography, art theory, humanities, a number of different things, but basically darkroom classes had to, had to cancel midway. We were just after spring break when they sent us all home, so we had to figure out how to make darkroom photography, you know, from all over the country, because people went back to wherever they, they were from, and that posed a whole other set of challenges. So yeah, what is the photograph? What's an archive? What's a document? How do we understand the sort of instantaneous moment that the photograph captures as something that speaks across time, that records time, that records a moment? So that, I guess that was part of the things I was thinking about. Ah, so you were right from the start then, consciously, intentionally participating in the creation of an archive. Yeah, and so there are people that are, you know, that other teachers here in L.A., other artists, and also there were a lot of arts people, models, performers, dancers, people that were out of work or had, you know, careers were being impacted by the pandemic. So I had originally thought of it as kind of a, looking at the arts, looking at how different communities of people are sort of managing. And, and I used sort of the same background for everything to kind of unify it as far as trying to think about. And actually that back backdrop is something I, I had in the garage because you couldn't go buy a backdrop. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that backdrop was 25 years old <laughs> and had been in a bag I hadn't looked at for, t for two decades. Because behind that backdrop is a giant printer in my, in my studio because my, my school studio is closed. And so the only access I had is basically a, a room in my house. And yet somehow you found a way to get a print to the Getty. Or to make a print, I guess, and get it to the Getty. The print was already made, that print. So it was on the wall. It was on the wall in my living room, and so they came and took it off the wall. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not the way these things work in normal times. 
where did you print it? Just not to ask, not to, not to ask the nerdy photographer question, but but did you have anything resembling a normal printing experience, or do you have your own Epson? Or I have my own printer. I have a, a Canon actually, but that print is a vintage print. That print was first shown at LAX Art in 2007 at the beginning of a basically a series of projects that were related to a book I worked on called Lynching in the West. Well, let's let's pivot to your long and rich history of both working with archives and to your address of whiteness. And I wanted to start with a work in your profiled series, a series that points to how sculpture and other three-dimensional representational objects represent constructions of whiteness and otherhood and extend those ideas across often many, many centuries. And the specific work I want to jump into first anyway is from 2014, and you've titled it America by Hiram Powers, Plaster, 1848-50, to 50, Smithsonian American Art Museum. I love an image of it on manpodcast.com. The sculpture represented in your picture is the only surviving full-length iteration of a sculpture that Powers made substantially in response to the European events of 1848, to the waves of uprisings and attempted revolutions around Europe. And it's a sculpture that offers American republicanism as a beacon to a European continent that was, among other things, questioning monarchical models for reasons, I guess, not totally germane to our conversation. It's a sculpture on which I've been working a lot lately, so I have all kinds of (laughs) thoughts about it. What's really striking about your picture is that you show us America from behind, from its back. Why did you cho- choose that address of it? Why did you choose that sculpture and why did you choose that address of it? So the, the photograph of America came out of my research into the collections of the Smithsonian, where I was a artist in residence, and I photographed sculptures in, in three of the institutions, the National Portrait Gallery, the American Art Museum, and the National Museum of Natural History. And I was looking for depictions of Native Americans, First Nations people in our nation's capital. So that was the research project. And in the exhibition that came out of it, I basically had one wall which had a set of famous white Americans, George Washington, Marcel Duchamp, (laughs) a bunch of different sort of people that are in the collection, Benjamin Franklin on one side. And on the opposite side, I had a group of Native Americans who were cast at one point and their casts were stored in a storage facility off off site basically. And so the America is in in between. So she has her back turned to us, the audience, the viewer, and sort of helps to emphasize the idea of who gets included in our national museums and who doesn't, who is seen and who isn't. And so this idea of of the promise of America that had failed or had been problematized. And so by bringing the works out of storage and into the space, I was also trying to, I guess, acknowledge that history and, and to use the existing historical objects to, to have them speak for themselves in a sense. So it's just the installation or the constellation of works that, that allowed new meaning to come out of it. Why was photographing the plaster sculpture from behind, looking at its back, more interesting to you than looking at its front? So it's not that it was more interesting. It's that, that, that photographing the sculpture from the back allowed me to suggest that we needed to think about notions of liberty 
notions of America, what it stands for, and who has access to those to those privileges. And so, for me, photographing the back spoke to that that idea of being outside, outside beyond view, uh, to be marginalized, to be othered, to be unrepresented, and to think about our nation in that way. And this this exhibition was up in the time of Trump, which 2018, I think. <laughs> yes, but we started planning it before that. And obviously, so the, I suppose in part, we had imagined the possibility that president could go to a museum <laughs> or certainly people that, it's possible that there are, there are countries where presidents and leaders go to their cultural institution. And we thought that this is a museum in Washington, D.C., and we wanted to speak to the politics, gently speak to the politics of the moment and think about who, who's included not. So there are three rooms and each room looked at a different aspect of the American dream and really different aspect of the Smithsonian Institution, which is our national museum, right? Or actually our national museums. There's 21 altogether. And so we, we worked across four or five different museums to share the work that we intended to show, to explain the reasons for presenting it in the way we did, and to try to, and of course, to get permissions to show the work in that way, right? Showing the, the sculpture from the back wasn't necessarily something the museum was comfortable with or was familiar with. And so that required a lot of conversation about why one would do that. And I think from my perspective, the historical objects are indeed historical objects. So they have a narrative that that surrounds them, that shapes them, but they are also living objects in the sense that I literally stood in front of that object, spent a day with it, you know, in real time, in real space, lighting it, moving around it, thinking about it, thinking about what does America mean? What what does it mean to powers at that time? And what does it mean to me photographing in a storage facility in a basement in Washington, D.C.? And that particular piece was crated, and so they had to actually take it out of the crates, and it's plaster. So it was originally intended to be a a marble, but the, he never got the commission. Well, he did make a, a, a full-length marble version. It was destroyed in a fire in, um, I want to say, Chicago in like 1852. I could be wrong on the site of the fire, but but it was it was destroyed in in a fire, and so the plaster version is the only full-length version that exists. There are busts based on the full-length version and on the plaster version in literally dozens of American art museums. Right. So I knew that the, the marble wasn't around and that all they had was the plaster. I didn't realize that it was destroyed. But I was trying to obviously find it and photograph it. And the plasters are very delicate, so they're not left on view normally. And really, every time they're shown or uncreated a little bit of, there's some danger that they could, you know, a piece could fall off or, <laughs> or they'd be damaged. So there's also was a, a preciousness to the object itself or delicacy to it that seemed to speak to so many metaphors about whiteness, about race, about what is America, about the frailty of democracy. As you see the back of the sculpture, you can see the, you know, the little points that were used to make the copies or to make the marbles or to make multiples. And so the, I guess, all of the frailty of it. And I, I probably photographed it, probably took 200 photographs, 300, something like that. So part of it was really just spending time with that object and thinking about that object and thinking about the scale of it and size of it and all of those things to come up with that. There's a whole lot in that picture that fascinates me. One, one of the things about your decision to photograph it from the back 
is that here's here's a picture uh, here's a sculpture that offers America a, a white woman representing America as a beacon of liberty for the world and powers always intended the sculpture to air quotes face Europe for the idea of the American nation to inspire Europe and you portray it in such a way that the sculpture might be thought to be facing Europe and in so doing its back faces America which points to me anyway, how Powers' allegorical representation of America turns its back on the failures of American liberty, which may not have been important to you, but it works for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that was part of, I mean, part of it. So the whole show moves through. The first room really looks at the history of lynching and thinking about who's represented and not. The middle room looks at sort of sculpture and sculptural representations, sort of the institutionalization of whiteness. And then the third room looked at the idea of the portrait or the individual and who's included or excluded from our our national narrative. And using our National Museum's collections as the departure point for that exploration because those collections continue to represent our nation, right? And continue to do the work that they they do. So the intervention, my intervention, was a, a, a moment in the timeline of the institution, a blip in the timeline of those people that happened to see it or get through the museum at that time frame. So it was, it's a dialogue, it's a narrative, it's a, it's a conversation that might just be, you know, short-lived, but it was an attempt to place a historical marker that even if, if nothing changes and if we have infamy upon infamy and sort of endless loss of democracy <laughs> spiraling ever, ever downward or wherever, whatever happens, there, there will be a moment in the timeline that represents our nation where this narrative was presented in a place in a real time where people saw it. I think they estimate it was visited by over 3 million people. That is to say the museum was visited. It doesn't mean everybody went to see my particular exhibition or spent time looking at it, but that is a lot of people. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you think of the average, the average art exhibition, you know, might be a few hundred or a few thousand, depending, I guess, on the artist and the location. So this idea of having a, having a dialogue at the national level around issues of who belongs and who doesn't about what is America and what isn't was very much on my mind. It's also an exhibition and collection series of objects that point to the Smithsonian's own history. The Smithsonian was founded in thorough white supremacy. Its first secretary was a white supremacist who was crucial to the extension of some of the most white supremacist actors in the American South into California. It's Joseph Henry, that Smithsonian secretary, who helps John and Joseph Lacan, two Confederates, into the beginnings of what becomes the University of California system, where their names and work live large in the West, including on the founding of, of the Sierra Club. And I think that your that that project and that work points at a lot of those under examined histories and relationships. Elsewhere in the series, you call us to color, if you will, both in a work such as 41 Objects Arranged by Color, which offers, you know, 41 objects, <laughs> in various media arranged from the darkest material that the object is made from, if you will, to the lightest material, to a work like Untitled Reflecting Pool, the J. Paul Getty Museum Villa Collection, Malibu, California, which is dated 2009 to 12. It's a single work that interrogates the construction of a broad, millennia-long 
narrative. It shows a foot, a piece of marble, and a pool. We'll have it on nampodcast.com too there, of course. I want to talk about how that piece uses color a little bit. Whose foot do we see there? How do we see it tonally or coloristically, if you will? And what is the relationship between that object, the travertine on which it's sitting, and, and the water? So as you probably know, or maybe you don't, or but certainly people may not know, listening, it's photographed at the Getty Villa, which is a modern recreation of a historic villa in Pompeii. And the bronzes are reproductions, modern reproductions of uh, bronzes that were found at this particular location and other locations. And so the museum itself is, a, I believe, scale, or at least in, meant to represent a real historic villa. And then the sculptures are, are surrounding the reflecting fountain that would have been, I assume, in the original. So it's part of this large and very, I think, rather unique museum uh, here in Los Angeles that was, I think, at one point imagined to be a residence for J. Paul Getty, and then, of course, just became a museum and used to be rather difficult to get access to and a whole bunch of other things. So the figure you see would be could be assumed to be a Greek or Roman youth and would have been a white person, obviously, and is patinaed black. And so the the photograph captures the the color, and both pieces, even the 41 objects range, speak to the idea of the kind of race as a signifier, color as a signifier of race, sorry, and the arbitrariness of color in relationship to race, and yet the way that that signifies culturally in so many different locations. So the, the photograph shows only enough of the figure to invoke the question or invite the question of what race, what action, what activity, what's going on here, what is this leg doing lying before a reflecting pool, and then the, I suppose, the, the performative aspect of the whole thing, from the villa being this sort of recreation, so both an imaginary space and a real space located in Los Angeles, which, you know, has its own history of sort of imagining and being imagined, and then the restrictions of that location in terms of who had access historically to the Getty Villa. There were a lot of issues around the question of whether people could take a public bus or if you had to have your own car in the early days or early controversies. So anyway, I think it speaks to all of those questions about what, what belongs in a museum, who belongs in a museum, what are we seeing, how does that speak to other issues or invoke or invite other kinds of conversations. Yeah, I mean, I think it also points to the construction of whiteness itself, right? In the sense that, you know, the travertine in the picture was used as a building material to create what we now think of as architecture that defined Italian Republican built forms, both in ancient Rome, but most recently, you know, the Trump administration wanted to construct public buildings only using those ancient Roman, you know, neoclassical forms. And of course, there's a reference and construction of whiteness built into that building material, but also into the construction of European and then later American ideas of beauty, which is raised by the the foot and lower leg <laughs> in your picture. And it's, it's, it's a collision of many things at once, all there with a body of water, which can read multiple ways, but also, <laughs> among others, 
suggests the ocean across which these ideas transited in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Yes, and, and part of the larger project is looking at the, the development of whiteness and, and really the culpability of artists in that. So that many of those objects you see in the 41 objects are made by somebody, right? And some of them are indeed art objects. Some of them are what might have been more educational display or Museum of Natural History display. Others were, you know, I guess had different functions. But the idea was to think about how all of these objects have contributed to a legacy of racialization and misrecognition that, that we live with today. And their continued existence continues to wreak havoc, right, on our ability to dispel or displace outdated notions because they're still here. And yet, like the debates around monuments and memorials, you know, do we just destroy the past? Do we throw them all out? And so, again, part of it, when you think about archives or, or what an artist's practice is, the practice is not so much taking the photograph, though I do research the locations of each object, get access to it through lots of asking and begging, <laughs> and then photograph it. So there, there is a performative component in the sense that I have to physically go see the thing, photograph it, and then use that. It is both a record of my travels. It is also a record of the travels of others and of the constructive, productive force of objects in our culture. And so then trying to unpack that for people so that I'm not simply repeating the past, but allowing the past to find other ways of speaking to us, creating assemblages or collections of works that, like any archive, create a system in which the viewer can begin to imagine relationships first between one object and then two and so on, so that they begin to locate themselves within a, a matrix of ideas, some of which they share and some of which they reject, but all, but which surround us all. That points to one of, for me, the strengths of your practice, and that is that you don't only reveal and interrogate the cultural construction of whiteness, you and other work go on to point to the repercussions of the cultural construction of whiteness. And the series of works in which you do that that are best known address the history of lynching, particularly lynching in the American Far West. So before we address that work on lynching, I was wondering if there is a work or works within your oeuvre that you mindfully made as a link between the construction of whiteness we've been talking about and work that addresses violence done to bodies of people not culturally constructed as white. So the answer, like, you know, as you would expect, is complicated, but the very simple version would be that the graduate project that I began working on was called The Secrets of the Bonegrass Boy, and it was a fictionalized 19th century frontier novel. And basically, I had researched some of the history around this in the Southwest and tried to create characters that represented those histories, and then used myself as the model to play all of those characters. So it was an attempt to try to to look at the intersection between Western expansion in the Southwest and the basically indigenous and Latinx bodies that were already here, many of which were my ancestors, <laughs> and to think about how they navigated that particular moment. So that was where it started. That was done as uh, sort of staged photographs of me in different 
outfits and and very campy and it was a, it was a campier time though <laughs> <laughs> it was so so that project and also I was a younger artist so that project was really about I guess me learning how to do research and learning how to think about photographs and very much about what we might think of as narrative photography where there's a subject doing something and we can learn something from what that subject is doing and and I I was disappointed with my with that way of working and so I started doing a, a series of works looking at really close-up details of the body, skin, and trying to think about if race always signified if, you know, by skin, by hair color, by eyes, if, if it was always about how we look and there was no way to escape that, or how does the photograph, the indexical nature of the photograph change the way we understand what we're looking at. And so I did a series of these sort of close-up grids exploring, I guess, the limits of the indexical and its relationship to being legible, right? So these super close-ups of skin that look like abstractions and trying to, I guess, get away from the literalness that I had in that first project. And then that led to looking at portraiture and eventually through looking at actually Latino portraiture here in California, discovering this other history that I had never been told about. Uh, so you kind of started in the middle and then worked out to to either side, to the cultural construction of whiteness on one side and then to violence on the other. Yeah, it, they were all mixed together in this, this frontier novel, which is a, is a page turner. There's love, there's romance. It's set during the Mexican-American War. So the idea is that this sort of fictional ancestor is of mixed race descent, half, you know, sort of Latinx and indigenous, which is which is my family's history. A, co- a common California history, indeed. Exactly. And so I was trying to imagine, well, what did they do when it became America? Because here I was, this was the 90s, and I was having a hard time with all the anti-immigration stuff and all the experiences as an individual, trying to get through the world and recognizing that, that it was not the way I had imagined it would be. And I was thinking, well, what, how did they do this 100 years ago? <laughs> you know, what were the kinds of experiences that, that my ancestors survived? And how did that shape them? And how does that what is the legacy that I inherit? So that's where the, the conversation began, I guess, as you might expect, in a graduate school exploring personal history, I guess being given permission to think about my own history as meaningful, because I had never been taught. There are no books where Latinx bodies figure in the center in American history. There are no exhibitions that feature us. There are no books. There's no publications. There's, you look through the history of photography, and you'd be very hard-pressed to find Latinx body behind the camera. So I didn't have anywhere else to look, you know what I mean? So that was the beginning. And then finding of trying to imagine the voice of each of those characters, each of those positionalities, led me then to this larger investigation of photography and what does it mean and what am I going to do with it? And, and then how, how is each image I take already being read or reread or misread uh, before I've even taken it? What can I do? How can I signal to the viewer that I'm thinking about these things and that they should too? What, what can I, what bridge can I build to share my experiences with others who, who may not be familiar with those kinds of experiences? So where does that book live now? That book, it's an idea. In other words, there, so there are book pages on my computer and there's about 50 pages so far. It's, it's the great unfinished novel. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that itself is pretty American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a page turn. It's really good. But every time I look at it, because it's been, it was started, you know, 20 some years ago, 
I start rewriting it and then I have to stop because I'm like, I'm like, am I going to rewrite it or am I going to just look at it? And so the question of whether it's a living document or an archival document, I guess, is where we're at. But I did show a version of it recently in L.A., well, two years ago now, I guess, as a part of PST. As part of the last Getty Pacific Standard Time series of shows, which was called LALA for Latin America, Los Angeles, you showed an installation, so a visual installation, called The Bone Grass Boy, The Secret Banks of the Conejos River. And I was going to ask if that project came out of that near novel. <laughs> yes, that project is basically a reinstallation of the, and an extension of the original project. So The Bone Grass Boy was initially part of my MFA thesis project, and then after school, I got a teaching job and went on to other projects, and it sort of uh, went into the storage facility, whatever, in, in the garage. And 20-some years later, as a part of PST, my gallery asked me if I would be willing to basically bring it out of storage and share it with people because it hadn't been exhibited, you know, in a quarter of a century or whatever. And so that's what we did. And so I re-edited the sections of the book and printed them at scale in, you know, framed them like a grid on the wall. And then I, I shared some of the original objects that I had used and some of the original prints, actually many of the original prints, they were mostly vintage prints of the original project. And so it had never been shown in that way before and in that, that, much, that much work. So it was a chance to really see it all together for the first time. And that was really the starting place for thinking about all of these intersecting histories in the Southwest and trying to find a way to share that with other people, to create work that would articulate that and, and to have that uh, history represented in some way in, in the art world, I guess, or in museums or galleries or somewhere. A few minutes ago, I referenced your work that looks at the impacts of the enforcement of whiteness on peoples who are not white. And your, your best-known series is called Erased Lynchings. And in that series, you work with photographic representations of or celebrations of, of violence. And in those works, you typically remove the specific instruments of violence, such as the ropes used in lynching, with the effect that it focuses our modern-day attention on everything else in the picture, from trees to people conducting the lynching or people watching a lynching. So I, I guess kind of a foundational question about that body of work. Were you interested in your act of erasure as being a metaphor, or was that incidental to your broader or primary focus? So the erasure in the erased lynchings is where I remove the body of the lynching victim and the rope, as you mentioned. And the reason was twofold. One was to talk about the erasure of Latinos from the history of racialized violence in America, and not just Latinos, also Asians, Native Americans, Filipinos, and others that were lynched in California. And the other part was to try to think about what is universal in acts of racialized violence across the nation and to think about whiteness and the construction of the mob. And you can see in these images that mobs tend to look very similar, right? There's lots of overlaps. And so this idea of the performative aspect of whiteness, this racialized killing or other forms of vigilante justice were part of the conversation. I mean, you can think of the hundreds, thousands of people taking over our nation's capital a few months ago. It looked a lot like these images we see 
of the lynchings where people are smiling and this sort of energy and celebration that they have of, of these acts of violence, almost a, a hysteric glee, right, at sort of the most, most barbarous of, of activities. So I was trying to get at that. I mean, now we all know what that looks like because we've seen the, the insurgents, right, in our nation's capital. But back when I started this project, I was trying to help people understand that the mobs of the 1930s were not some, uh, were not aliens. They weren't from outer space. They were us. They were what we still are. People who saw these works in galleries almost certainly had relatives who participated in such. Yes. And also the, the postcards, they're, they're based off of uh, lynching postcards, would have been distributed and sold to, you know, in, in the hundreds and thousands. So many people, even if they hadn't been at the actual event, might have had a postcard in their little collections album or something like that hidden away somewhere. So, And, and going back earlier, as represented in your own work, stereographs, Penny Entertainment. Yes, definitely. And there's also, as I learned, a lot of recreations or stage versions where people are recreating a famous lynching or dressing up as if they're doing it. And so this idea, some of them were, were collected in Europe, bought and sold in Europe. So it wasn't only a Western activity, you know, in terms of the, the Wild West, lynching in terms of the South, that it was really, you could find examples of these collective acts of violence in nearly every state from throughout the 19th, uh, sort of latter half of the 19th century into the first half of the 20th. And so it really is a large chunk of American history, touching all 50 states. That part of the story is not somebody anybody had ever told me. And I had never realized that, that Latinx bodies were, were murdered, were lynched, were killed, were really uh, treated horribly. And of course, now we know that there was also the Chinese massacre here in L.A., and of course, the anti-Asian violence is, of course, on the uprise nationally. So all of these overlaps to different communities were what I was trying to bring into the conversation. I was not trying to undo or undermine our understanding of lynching in the South. At that time, when I started the project, a book called Without Sanctuary had just been published, which presented over 100 images of lynching of mostly African-Americans. That book did include five cases from the state of California. And it was at that point that I realized that there was work to be done. And so from the time I began that project, there were only 50 known cases of lynching in the state of California. And by the time I finished that project, I had documented over 350 cases, seven times the known number. And my belief was, and still is my belief, that this many brown bodies right, is meaningful and is meaningful to understanding how race functions nationally. And so there are, there are, of course, multiple narratives, which we all know, but the way that they all weave through this larger thing, which I think today we're referring to in our, in our conversation here today, but around how whiteness works in shaping and regulating these manifestations of difference, right? If you want to think of different identities, Asian, Black, Latinx, how we've been configured historically. And also we could add in gendered bodies, trans bodies, right? We could sort of look at all of the sort of normalizations and the places where, and the treatment of individuals who, who do not conform to those conventions. And, and I should note that as we're talking at the end of March, 2021, 
many state legislatures have been attacking trans bodies around the frankly bizarre area of youth sports. So the politics of otherhood continue in, in many forms. So I wanted to drill in a little more on how core to your construction of address of lynching, you use erasure as a creative act. And I understand how or why you're choosing to erase certain elements from certain pictures or, or, or certain representations of acts of lynching. But does that act of erasure work for you primarily pictorially, or do you intend it as a broader metaphor for how history is created and constructed and what it leaves out? Of course, it's about the larger absence of information and the way that those absences contribute to furthering and creating new acts of violence and repeating. So the other thing to think about is that when you're trying to imagine what where the artwork is, like if somebody's listening to this and like, what is that guy talking about? <laughs> what does he make? <laughs> I take, you know, I take pictures of sculptures somebody else has made. I and I basically take photos of photos somebody else has done, and then I race out the figures. What does all that mean? How could that be art? Well, from my perspective, the thing that I'm making, the thing that, just like a painter paints, you know, takes out the green and paints the tree, I'm making a space for absence, and that absence is as much metaphor as 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 anything else. So, of course, I have to fill in the space behind where the body was or whatever was taken out. And that's, you know, sort of the, the trickery of Photoshop, I suppose. But the artwork is not in the the making of the bush that replaced the figure, right? It's, the artwork is in creating an, a work about absence where absence is the subject. And so I, I always try to tell people, absence is the presence. And so it's trying to see that. When you see it, particularly in the way they are exhibited, People figure it out pretty quick. I don't think I've ever had anybody say they didn't know, understand what it was about. And of course, we have labels and other information as well. But the idea was to allow people, the average viewer, to stand in front of the work and to, to, and to I guess, to see what I see, to share that experience of erasure, of being erased, of being invisible, unseen, trapped in the mechanisms of a system that, that predates you and will continue long past you're gone. And looking at that, it's a bit like, I think, our lives in COVID, where we all were sort of trapped looking. You know what I mean? We weren't in the picture anymore. <laughs> we were looking from outside. Think of the kind of way that absence played into our last year and life in the pandemic, the absence of friends, the absence of food, you know, people in sweats all day long, the absence of dressing up. <laughs> that absence, what is missing, didn't necessarily hurt us, but it altered us. And it altered our being in a way that we can't just, tomorrow, if, if everybody can just go out and, and hug again, it's, it's not going to erase the lived experience that we all had, the kind of hurtfulness and isolation and loneliness and, and questioning and uncertainty and fear that shaped us for this past year. Well, that is the experience that so many communities experience every day. And so the project was about trying to create absence as a presence that we could understand, that we could, in a way, see and touch and begin to, to try to unravel the mechanisms that made that possible. The thing that's most present in your work that addresses lynchings, whether it's in erased lynch lynchings or in the series California Hang Trees, are, perhaps obviously, trees. Trees have a specific 
history, in both art history and in the American Far West's history. In Western art history, trees are, are, are a symbol of life. The, the umpteen young, often spindly trees behind pictures of the Christ child and Mary, for example, in Catholic art. You have a master's degree in art history, I think, from Hunter. Yes. As you addressed how trees existed within the history of lynchings in California, were you interested in how, or did you care about how trees had been used by artists across arts history? Yes, I, I did care. <laughs> and the project was, for those who may not be familiar, was about trying to first identify this history, right, this history of lynching, and then second, to try to go look for locations. So I physically got in the car and drove around, and you know, here nobody had ever told me there was a history of lynching in California, and that Latinx bodies had been killed in disproportionate numbers. And so I'm sitting in an archive somewhere looking at microfilm, thinking, nobody told me this, and initially, as an artist, nobody wanted to hear from me, you know, oh, that crazy artist, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So there was a lot of people that doubted the research when I started. And so called searching for California hang trees, not finding California hang trees. Yes, I'm sorry. Did I, I say, did I say finding? I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, you didn't. But I'm just, I like to emphasize that for people because one of the things is I went looking, it doesn't mean I could find everything. And a lot of them, I, I only, I did find a few, but a lot of them are, are stand in for. Like, I know they're in the right county. They're, they're down the street from, they're, they're nearby perhaps. But for me, the, I guess the, the important part was to go look. Uh, here, 350-some people had been killed in the state, and there are very few markers. It's not taught in school. All the books were wrong. Uh, if I drop dead tomorrow, that history is gone. You know what I mean? So I was wanted to go and look and see, I don't know, what, what's going to be there? What's going to – what happened? What, what are people doing there now? What What's going on? And so the, the trees, of course, that were most favored by the lynch mobs were the California oak tree, the native oak, because, of course, it's – got very curly branches and they tend to be relatively low to the ground and pretty easy to access. And they grow very slow. And at that particular time, when I started the project, they were also dying off of something called sudden oak death. So basically they were vanishing. And, and I was thinking of them as these witnesses to a history that really nobody else knew about or believed, but me and, and them. So yes, I went and went to, to eBay and bought an old wooden Deerdorf camera, the same kind that Edward Weston and other famous photographers, Watkins, of course, used a much larger format. But this idea of taking the master's tools, here there's a, a legacy of, of white artists photographing the California landscape in a way that denied the existence of Latinx bodies, indigenous bodies, all of the various bodies that were already here, right? And created what we think of, which we all love, these beautiful images of the the California landscape is this wonderful place we can all occupy in our imaginations as we look at the rolling hills and beautiful trees. So I wanted to reclaim that, right, to say that this history of photography might be wrong and to say, what if, what would it take to create a photographic image that speaks about the histories that are missing, the histories that no one sees? How can I photograph that when it doesn't exist anymore? And so that's where the, again, the meaning of the work is in, comes out of the absence and ultimately, it also comes out of the presence, the presence of my body through time in real space. Whether people like the work or don't or think it's art or isn't, no one can undo what I've done, 
no one can un, you know, rewind and erase the steps I've taken on this planet. And so the photographs are a record that I was there, that I stood there, that I thought about these bodies, and I, I thought about the families that were of the victims, because a lot of times we don't know what happened, you know, but I, I gave it time, I gave it my time. And I'm, I'm not done, actually, but it, it took me years, and California's a big state. One of the things about this series that's really interesting to me is that in American art, trees begin as a metaphor for white American liberty. You know, there are umpteen 19th century paintings of the White Mountains or the Catskills with prominently foregrounded elm trees. An elm tree in American art is a reference to the Liberty Tree of colonial era Boston fame. Often artists put a Liberty Tree and elm tree in front of Mount Washington, a way of pointing to the union between North and South during the 1840s and 1850s, years of, of emerging schism. And in the history of the American Far West, in the history of American California and its relationship with Union in the 1850s and especially in the early 1860s, California's trees, particularly the grizzly giant near in the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias near Yosemite, became a metaphor for the West's faith in the endurance of union and the West's commitment to union in the American Republican experiment, all of which, sorry, an historian lecture kind of way, brings me to a picture of yours called Holcomb Valley from 2006, which is a sequoia-looking tree. I, I, I think it's probably not a sequoia because I think it's too far south. But that picture, Holcomb Valley, made me wonder if you were interested in the way trees had been used by artists across American art going back to the early 19th century? They, they resonate in so many ways, right? Certainly with art historically, in terms of national history, in terms of local history. That particular tree was chosen because it is believed to have been an actual lynching tree. And the story goes that they would chop a branch off each time they they lynch somebody to it, and so you can see there's five or six branches missing. The newspapers that were published in Holcomb Valley, which basically it was a mining town, and apparently at one point there was a population and a newspaper, and all of that has been lost. So the only accounts are from basically secondhand accounts and of people that had read the newspapers or had read the accounts. So the tree stands in as, as a tree that is marked as being part of this history. And then, of course, in California, the logging industry and that region was logging and mining. And so thinking about, you know, I guess, California natural resources, thinking about the role of the tree in the whole series. There's a bunch where I photograph them at night. And, you know, I guess ways of trying to, I think there's been so many shows on trees. I don't want to try to claim any ownership of the tree as a form. <laughs> But I, I think in terms of my practice, the tree is an important part of the story. And I was thinking also about the, just that they're frailty in California. They're, they're indigenous so, or native. And so they have very weak immune systems. And so they also can die off rather easily. No, trees in California are particular markers of climate change. And, and that's been happening across the Sierra front. And also of development. So I was not thinking necessarily notions of, of, I guess, nationhood. I was thinking really more about California and about its history and, and the land here and the histories here. And I suppose the, the way in which California's history is somehow often treated as 
somehow outside of American history or Latinx history. My family's been here for forever, for, for a very, very long time, some parts of it. And so in California, you just don't find that much recognition in terms of if you look at the, the politics, the museums, these collections, all of the various things that we look to. Yeah, well, I, love, I just love the way those works complicate so many histories and, and art histories, including a few that I probably contributed to myself. <laughs> I mean, I can also say I had imagined, I'd, when I started, I thought, oh my God, I'm never going to do a project on trees. I'm not going to do a landscape tree project, right? And, uh, and of course, you know, careful what you say, because then I end up spending many years of my life doing it, because it had sort of symbolized, I guess, the othering of so many things to me that trying to find a way around that seemed impossible. And yet I ended up trying to do it. I want to close by referencing something we were talking about earlier in terms of your address of institutional collections. One of the key ideas that runs across a lot of your work is that institutional collections are not, particularly art museum collections, are not to be approached only as objects to be celebrated, but that they should be interrogated. And that considering what was collected and often where it was collected can reveal to us how the world we live in now was created. And I think that that's a, an important address that I think runs against what a lot of Americans think about art museums. You know, we, I think people tend to think that, oh, if the yada yada object is in the Cleveland Museum of Arts, you know, whatever collection, then it must be capital G great and that we should accept that. And your approach is to query that rather than to lionize it, to revise rather than, than to extend. Was there an artist or artists um, or maybe an author or something else who pointed you in such a direction, you know, maybe when you were in grad school or such, someone or some experience that urged you or empowered you to interrogate and revise? Yes, of course. <laughs> who would that be? So many people. I mean, of course, it's, you know, we all have amazing teachers and uh, amazing experiences. I would say, as a young person, I, I took courses with Rosalind Krauss as a part of my MA in art history. And that was a time when people were really looking at art as sort of post-structuralism, thinking about everything as an image or a sign or a metaphor or something more that overlaps with all those things and thinking about the intersectionality of how one deciphers an object. I mean, you go to Panofsky, even classic art history, but basically what do you see? What's in the frame? What's not in the frame, right? And then where is the frame? And then who paid for that frame? So I guess trying to, to think about all of those questions, the Hans Hacke's exhibition at the Guggenheim, you know, on the sort of slumlord, I'm sorry for getting the name of it, but you know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, you got the key parts. I can't remember his name either. Yeah. You, you got the key words though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which, you know, I don't want to get sued or anything, but anyway, it was at the time I was in graduate school, there were a lot of artists that were doing work that interrogated images. And certainly I also, I think, might overlap with the pictures generation in terms of artists who did appropriate, used appropriate images. Certainly I, I saw a lot of that work in school. So thinking about, I guess, what is, what's present, what's absent, what's represented, how did the artist point outside of the object? And how do we think about that, that sort of index Cali, the pointing of, you know, Baldessari's, there's so many works. So trying to think about art making, not as nostalgic idea of the artists being inspired by a muse and painting 
you know, a beautiful landscape, right? That, the idea was to think of these as, as a kind of political speech, images that would become instrumentalized, you know, when they're attached to a textbook or when they become part of somebody's PhD dissertation and then go on to be taught in, you know, classrooms forever. So the way that images can be purposed and repurposed by others was something I was very aware of and, and trying to create images that would resist that and could, I guess, hold their own or might hold their own or might invite other investigations that would resist being overwritten by the historians later. <laughs> and to think about all of those erasures and all of those invisibilities that, that I see walking through a museum. Ken Gonzalez Day, thank you. Thank you for having me. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Hockney Van Gogh, The Joy of Nature, showcasing the work of David Hockney and Vincent Van Gogh side by side for the first time in an American museum and only in Houston. Discover the expansive landscape paintings and vivid drawings of two renowned artists. For details on virtual lectures, curated shopping, and tickets, go to mfah.org slash hockneyvangogh. Welcome back. Next up, Bema Center for Contemporary Arts Chief Curator and Director of Programs Rachel Adams joins me to preview Celebrating Tony Conrad, a two-day online streaming festival honoring and highlighting Conrad's collaborations with musicians and performers from around the world. The event streams from the Bemis YouTube page on Thursday, May 27th and Friday, May 28th, that's a week from this week, at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll have a link to both the Bemis Center's website and to the Bemis Center's YouTube page on manpodcast.com. Conrad was a pioneering experimental media artist whose work, beginning in the early 1960s, helped initiate ways in which artists have explored audio and video. Adams co-curated the 2018 Tony Conrad, a retrospective, for the University of Buffalo Art Galleries and the Albright Knox Art Gallery. Rachel Adams, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned in the introduction, Tony Conrad was an experimental media artist who worked in a little bit of everything. Uh, new genres before, you know, the Academy had created <laughs> new genres. I mean, he's, he's a big part of who the Academy was responding to with those programs. Today, we're going to focus on sound and sounds. And I'm not sure how to start here, but one way is with drone music and the theater of eternal music or the Dream Syndicate which was an avant-garde musical group which formed in New York City in 1962 and which pioneered drone music. How did Conrad come to be involved and what did the group do and make and I guess lead to? Yeah, so Tony was very young back in the 60s. It was right after he finished college and found himself in New York. I'm trying to remember the exact timeline, which I can't, but basically he found himself working or living with several musicians and Lamont Young's partner, Marianne, I believe, basically invited him to kind of come play. They started, you know, working together, Lamont and Tony and John, Kale, all sort of were working together. Drone music kind of came from that, you know, Tony started, he was always a violinist and he basically started holding these these notes. And that was sort of this kind of episodic, long sounds that drone music was sort of born from those sessions. 
Lamont Young's partner was Marianne Zazila. The theater of eternal music was this kind of great joining of, of many things. So you had people interested in sound, such as everybody you just mentioned. You had people interested in both sound and visual art, like Walter Di Maria, who played with the group on drums, I think. Yes, I think so. And then you had the music world, music world, you know, the, you know, what, what, what was becoming kind of the downtown scene finding its way into the commercial music world, you know, uh, Lou Reed and the group that went on to become the Velvet Underground. Yes, which Tony named them. Yeah, that's a great story. You should tell that story. <laughs> yeah. So Tony <laughs> was living with, I can't remember if it was John Cale or Lou Reed or maybe both of them. And he had brought home this kind of like smut you know, book that he had found and it was titled The Velvet Underground. And so, you know, that was sort of where the name ended up coming from. It's always nice to hear about influential books. Tony, I think. Yeah. (laughs) So you mentioned that Conrad was a violinist and that he was interested or becoming interested in duration and in the way sound or film allowed you to explore that and forgive the pun, or, you know, to extend that exploration at the risk of asking the world's most simplistic question, why was that of interest to him? You know, I think it was partially just to, you know, see how how long things can kind of go for and how during that duration, you know, the body and, you know, the way that you're experiencing something can change and there can be shifts. You know, I think with the, the theater of eternal music, there was also like, you know, lighting that was part of it. And so, you know, thinking of Tony's work in general, uh, both, you know, his, his music and also his film and his, you know, his, his paintings as well, you know, they're all about sort of duration and all about how time is part of this way that you can kind of see things change very slowly, or you can feel things change very slowly and just sort of have these really bodily experiences within that long duration of time. It's, it's, almost difficult to detail how influential an idea this was. So this is the early to mid-60s, 62, 63. And what comes after this? Empire, Warhol's 1964 film of the Empire State Building, Smithson and his focus on geologic time, which of course is quite durational, comes, comes along a little later in the decade, Michael Snow's Wavelength, which was, you know, wink, wink, a single shot, you know, a single durational shot, and 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 so artists just jumped head first into the idea. How did Conrad feel about the thoroughness with which others took off from what what he and his friends were doing? Oh, that's a good question, and I don't know if I can completely answer it. You know, I, I think that Tony was a collaborator to begin with. You know, he always was interested in working with people. So I think, you know, in general, he just continued to focus on on doing that. And so, you know, having multiple collaborations throughout his his lifetime from those original sessions. And I think excited that people were, you know, sort of taking this idea of duration and, you know, holding those those sounds and holding those notes or, you know, even the way that, as you mentioned, you know, like wavelength, like thinking about that idea. I think it excited him. I obviously cannot speak for him <laughs> exactly, but I think that it was something that he definitely continued to to focus on for his his career, you know, amongst many other things that kind of came into play. 
Yeah, you mentioned he was most interested in in the group and many people coming together. And that's something that even as he performed into the 21st century was something that continued. And the Warhols and the Snows and the Smithsons embraced his ideas, I guess you could say, without necessarily embracing the forms, always embracing, maybe without always embracing the forms that Conrad constructed around those ideas. He did, on occasion, correct me if I'm wrong, shoot a little side-eye at Andy Warhol, for example. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I believe you're correct there, for sure. Yeah, not alone in that either. So speaking of the group, I think that's really at the heart of the program you've put together. So the, the, this is a program that, that you and Venus have put together that begins a week from today. We'll tell people at, at the end of the segment here how they can watch, listen, participate. It's free. The program you've put together really underscores the all-for-one nature of, of Conrad's project. So I guess, could you give us the quick introduction to what the two-day program is, and then, we'll, and then we'll get to hear some clips from it? Sure, yeah. As you mentioned, two-day program. It could be probably many more days than that because Tony worked with so many people. But what we really wanted to do, and I worked with Regina Green, who worked with Tony sort of on his the musical side of his practice for a long time in terms of you know touring. But I reached out to Regina about doing this as sort of a five-year anniversary since Tony's death in 2016. And just thinking about, you know, as Bemis has put together this sound art and experimental music program over the last few years, you know, we would not have a sound art and experimental music program without Tony Conrad, you know, in that in that sense, and thinking about the history of of sound art and experimental music, and so I felt it was important both to celebrate Tony's life and his work through the collaborations that he did, and through the partnerships, you know, and through yeah, you know, all of the sort of people that you know, not all of them, but through many of the people that he worked with and that he was very close with. So we have commissioned performances from twelve different collaborators. And, you know, basically the program will span two days, about four hours a day. You know, the, the performances vary in length. Some are only 10 minutes, you know, some are, are longer. And we're excited to kind of share with, with the world, I guess, now that everything is virtual. Things that both Tony worked on. So there actually are works with Tony in them. There's works that are inspired by his, you know, his work. You know, there's work sort of in honor of him and thinking about, you know, drone music and, and that sort of thing as well. So, yeah, we're just really excited to to be able to to showcase these great artists that Tony had relationships with and also celebrate his his life and his legacy. So we have three clips. First one's from Jim O'Rourke. Listeners may not know O'Rourke's name, but they, they sure know his work as a composer, as a producer, as a film scorer, if that's the right phrase. What should we know about Jim O'Rourke and what should we know about his connection to Conrad? Yeah, so Jim and Tony, I'm not really sure exactly when they met, but they worked together, you know, several times. And this is a clip from a performance that they did for the Yokohama Triennial, which Tony was in both as a visual artist and I believe this was an opening performance for that triennial back in 2008. So Jim really wanted, since you know it had only happened, obviously in in Japan. Jim actually lives in Tokyo. He wanted to to showcase something that he and Tony did together. So that is what this clip is. <laughs> 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 
Jim O'Rourke. That was Jim O'Rourke. Next up, M.V. Carbon. While O'Rourke is maybe more oriented around Asia these days, Carbon is oriented across the other ocean (laughs) from the United States. What is the Conrad and Carbon story? Again, Carbon and Tony met, I believe, in, I want to say maybe the, the 90s. Tony always kept an apartment, even though he lived in Buffalo and taught at UB, kept an apartment in Brooklyn and was, you know, seen so many times, you know, bicycling around, around Brooklyn and met Carmen Carbon. And they had, they've done several collaborations toured together and they worked sort of, yeah, they worked together, together a lot. And actually I met MV briefly at the celebration of Tony's life that was put together right about a year after he passed in 2017. And I believe that this piece is from that that celebration. MV Carbon. was MV Carbon. The last clip we have is, appropriately enough, from a Buffaloan. Is it a Buffaloan? Help me. Uh, I believe that's what we used to call ourselves, Buffaloan. Oh, good. Okay. Buffalonian, actually, I think is maybe buff- the way to put it. <laughs> I, should, I should, for all kinds of reasons related to my personal life history, I should know that and don't. <laughs> but next up is, is a clip from Tony Baloney, who met a new Conrad in, in Buffalo in the 1980s. How did they work together? Tony Baloney was one of Tony Conrad's students, and he's in Tony's very famous film that he did with Mike Kelly called Women in Prison. They, you know, were basically lifelong friends after after meeting. And yeah, Tony Baloney was just sort of a, a young, he always, always refers to himself as like a young kid just hanging around Tony's studio, basically. And what 
I was really excited to ask him to do something. And he immediately replied like, yes, of course I will. And this piece is basically um, after Tony's, one of Tony's early tracks um, or Tony's track from his early minimalism album called After Four Violins. Tony Baloney enlisted lots of Buffalonians to help create this track where it's several different voices all layered over each other. Tony Baloney. Was Tony Baloney. So if listeners want to watch and listen to the two-day event, which is free, how and where may they do so? They can do that at the Bemis Center YouTube channel, which is just youtube.com slash Bemis Center. Very easy. And May 27th and 28th, starting at 4 p.m. Central Time. And do people need to RSVP or do anything like that? They don't need to RSVP, but they can definitely add it to their calendar. If you go to Bemis Center's website under our events page, easily add it to your calendar so you don't forget it's happening. And there are visuals, or you can also just listen to it as well. So it, it works both ways. Rachel Adams, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.